Chapter 3, Early Battles, Commencement of Fasting, Alteration of the Qibla, and Initial Discussion on the Battle of Badr. Commencement of Ghazwat and Saraya and the Ghazwa of Wadan, Safar 2AH. Now the Maghazi of the Holy Prophet ﷺ practically commenced. At times, it was a custom of the Holy Prophet to set out with the companions himself, and on some occasions he would dispatch a company in the leadership of a companion. Historians have given separate names to each one of these two types of campaigns. As such, a campaign in which the Holy Prophet personally took part has been termed a gazwa by historians. A campaign in which the Holy Prophet did not personally take part is referred to as a sariya arba'at. However, it should be remembered that in a gazwa or sariya, it is not necessary to set out specifically for the purpose of jihad by the sword. Rather, every such journey in which the Holy Prophet personally participated whilst in a state of war is known as a gazwa, even if it was not specifically for the purpose of fighting. In the same manner, every such journey which was undertaken by a community as per the command of the Holy Prophet is known as a sariya or baat in the terminology of historians, even if its fundamental purpose was not of battle. However, out of ignorance, some people consider every Ghazwa and Sariya to be a battle campaign, which is incorrect. It has already been mentioned that divine permission of jihad by the sword was granted in the month of Safar during the second year of migration. Since immediate action was required to protect the Muslims from the bloody intentions and threatening schemes of the Quraysh, the Holy Prophet set out from Medina with the community of the Muhajireen in the name of Allah, the Exalted. Prior to departure, the Holy Prophet appointed Sa'ad bin Ubada, chief of the Khazraj, as the emir of Medina in his absence, and set out towards the southwest of Medina on the road to Mecca until he finally reached Wadan. The people of the Banu Damra resided here. This tribe was a branch of the Banu Kinana, and in this manner these people were the paternal cousins of the Quraysh. Upon reaching here, the Holy Prophet engaged in discussions with the chieftain of the Banu Damra and settled a treaty by mutual agreement. The conditions of this treaty were that the Banu Damra would maintain friendly relations with the Muslims and would not aid an enemy against the Muslims. Furthermore, when the Holy Prophet called upon them in support of the Muslims, they would come immediately. On the other hand, on behalf of the Muslims, the Holy Prophet agreed that the Muslims would maintain friendly relations with the Banu Damra and would aid them whenever it was required. This treaty was formally written and signed by both parties. After an absence of 15 days, the Holy Prophet returned. Another name for the Ghazwa of Wadan is also the Ghazwa of Abwa. This is because the village of Abwa is closely situated to Wadan, and this was the same place where the noble mother of the Holy Prophet passed away. Historians write that in this Ghazwa, along with the Banu Damra, the Holy Prophet was conscious of the Quraysh as well. This means that in actuality, this campaign of the Holy Prophet was to put down the threatening schemes of the Quraysh. Furthermore, its objective was to dispel that poisonous and threatening influence which the caravans of the Quraysh, etc. had created against the Muslims amongst the tribes of Arabia and due to which the state of the Muslims was extremely vulnerable during these days. Sariya of Ubaidah bin al-Harith, Rabiul Awal 2H Upon his return from the Ghazwa of Wadan in the month of Rabiul Awal, the Holy Prophet 
dispatched a company of the Mahajirin, comprising of 70 men mounted on camels and the leadership of a close relative, Ubaidah bin al-Harith. The objective of this campaign as well was to forestall the attacks of the Quraysh of Mecca. As such, when Ubaidah bin al-Harith and his companions covered some ground and arrived close to Thaniyatul Murrah, they suddenly noticed that 200 armed young men had set up camp in the command of Ikrama bin Abi Jahal. The two parties encountered one another and a few arrows were exchanged in a confrontation. However, this group of idolaters stood down from further conflict due to the fear that the Muslims probably had hidden reinforcements at their disposal and consequently the Muslims did not pursue them. Albeit, two individuals from the army of the idolaters named Mikdad bin Amr and Utbah bin Ghazvan fled from the command of Ikrama bin Abi Jahal and joined the Muslims. It is written that they set out with the Quraysh for this very purpose so that they could find an opportunity to join the Muslims. The reason being that they were Muslims at heart but they could not migrate out of fear of the Quraysh due to their weakness. Moreover, it is possible that this very occurrence caused them to lose heart and they decided to step back considering this to be an evil omen. History has not recorded whether this army of the Quraysh, which was definitely not a trade caravan and regarding which Ibn Ishaq has used the words grand army set out in this direction with a specific objective. However, it is a definite that their intentions were not favorable. It was due to the grace of God that upon finding the Muslims vigilant and upon witnessing some of their own men joining the Muslims, they lost courage and retreated. Moreover, a practical benefit which the companions derived from this campaign was that two Muslim souls were delivered from the tyranny of the Quraysh. Surya of Hamza bin Abdul Mutlib, Rabiul Awal 2H. In this very month, the Holy Prophet dispatched another company of 30 men mounted on camels to Safiul Bahr in the east of Medina, where the region of Is was situated, under the command of his biological paternal uncle Hamza bin Abdul Mutlib. When Hamza and his companions promptly arrived, they found the head chieftain of Mecca, Abu Jahal, present there to welcome them with an army of 300 mounted men. This number was ten times the number of Muslims. But the Muslims had gone forth from their homes in order to carry out the command of God and his messenger, and the fear of death could not force them back. Both armies began to line up before one another, and battle was about to begin when the chief of that region, Mujaddidi bin Amr al-Juhni, who held relations with both parties, intervened, and on the brink of war, conflict was averted. Ibn Sa'd, who often follows his teacher Waqidi, writes that this was a caravan of the Quraysh which encountered the Muslims. However, Ibn Ishaq, as quoted by Ibn Hisham, has not made mention of a caravan. He has only written that 300 mounted men of the Quraysh were encountered and they were commanded by Abu Jahal. In light of other factors, the number of disbelievers as reported by Ibn Ishaq proves to be correct. Furthermore, it is definite that this company of disbelievers set out against the Muslims. As such, the attack of Ghurz bin Jabir Fihri, which shall appear ahead, supports this notion. Ghazva of Buat Rabiul Akhir 2AH during the last days of this very month, or in the beginning of Rabiul Akhir, the Holy Prophet ﷺ once again received news of the Quraysh. Upon this, the Holy Prophet took along a community of companions and set out himself. 
he appointed Saib bin Uthman bin Mazun as the emir of Medina in his absence. However, the whereabouts of the Quraysh could not be ascertained. Ghazwa of Ushaira and Sariya of Saad bin Abi Waqas. After this, upon receiving the news of the Quraysh of Makkah once again, the Holy Prophet ﷺ set out from Medina with a company of the companions and appointed his foster brother Abu Salama bin Abdul Asad as the emir in his absence. In this Ghazwa, after making numerous rounds, the Holy Prophet finally reached Ushaira, which was situated close to the coast in the region of Yanbu. Although a battle with the Quraysh did not take place, Nevertheless, the Holy Prophet settled a treaty with the Banu Mudlij on terms as were agreed upon with the Banu Dambra, and subsequently returned. It was during this journey that the Holy Prophet dispatched a company of eight Muhajirin in the leadership of Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas towards Kharar in order to obtain intelligence on the Quraysh. Attack of Qurz bin Jabir and Ghazwa of Safan Jamadiul Akhir to age. However, despite such vigilance and various Muslim parties constantly making watchful rounds in the surroundings of Medina, the mischief of the Quraysh managed to break through. As such, ten days had not passed since the return of the Holy Prophet to Medina when a chieftain of Makkah named Qurz bin Jabir Fihri, very cunningly along with the company of the Quraysh, suddenly raided a pasture of Medina, which was situated only three miles from the city and fled with camels, etc., belonging to the Muslims. As soon as the Holy Prophet received news of this, he appointed Zad bin Haritha as the emir in his absence and set out in his pursuit along with a group of the companions. The Holy Prophet pursued him until he reached Safwan, which is an area close to Badr, but he made good his escape. This Ghazwa is also known as Ghazwa Badratul Ullah. This raid of Qurz bin Jabir, which was not a minor Bedouin act of plunder, rather it is definite that he had set out against the Muslims on behalf of the Quraysh with a particular motive. As a matter of fact, it is very likely that he had specifically come with the intention of inflicting injury upon the very person of the Holy Prophet. But upon finding the Muslims vigilant, settled upon the robbery of their camels and ran off. This also demonstrates that the Quraysh of Makkah had planned to raid so as to utterly destroy the Muslims should also be remembered that the Muslims had already been given permission for jihad by the sword prior to this, and in a sense of self-defense, they had begun to employ an initial plan of action in this regard as well. However, until now, they had not practically suffered any loss in terms of wealth or lives. However, the raid of Garz bin Jabir was one which practically inflicted harm upon the Muslims. In other words, even after the acceptance of the challenge of the Quraysh, it was the disbelievers who practically initiated battle. Sariya of Abdullah bin Jash towards Nakhla Naturally, the sudden attack of Qurz bin Jabir had terrified the Muslims greatly, and since they were a standing threat by the chieftains of Makkah, then they would attack Medina and utterly destroy the Muslims. The Muslims were severely apprehensive. Upon observing these very threats, the Holy Prophet decided that the movements of the Quraysh should be surveyed from a closer distance so that all necessary intelligence with respect to them may be available on time and Medina was safeguarded from all kinds of sudden attacks. 
Hence, for this purpose, the Holy Prophet assembled a party of eight Muhajirin. As an act of wisdom, the Holy Prophet selected such men for this party who were from various tribes of the Quraysh, so that it was easier to obtain intelligence with regards to the hidden conspiracies of the Quraysh. The Holy Prophet appointed his paternal cousin, Abdullah bin Jash, as the commander of this party. In order to ensure that the prime mission of this party was kept secret even from the Muslim masses, upon ordering this Sariya, the Holy Prophet did not even inform the commander of this party as to where he was being sent and for what purpose. Rather, upon their departure, the Holy Prophet handed him a sealed letter and said that, This letter contained necessary instructions for you. When you cover a distance of two days, travel from Medina, open the letter, and act in accordance with the stipulated instructions. As such, Abdullah and his companions set out by the command of their master. When they had journeyed a distance of two days from Medina, Abdullah opened the instructions of the Holy Prophet, which were as follows. Go forth to the valley of Nakhla between Makkah and Taif, and obtain information on the Quraysh and return with news therefrom. Moreover, since an intelligence mission so close to Makkah was a very delicate task, at the bottom of this letter the Holy Prophet had written that after the objective of this mission became known, if any from among his companions was hesitant in accompanying this party and desired to return, then permission would be granted to do so. Abdullah read out this guidance to his companions, who unanimously affirmed that we happily present ourselves for this service. Then this party proceeded to Nakhla. Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas and Utbah bin Ghazwan lost their camels en route and were separated from their companions. Despite their best efforts, they were unable to relocate their companions. The party was now left with only six people. On this occasion, Mr. Margolius has written that Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas and Utbah intentionally let their camels loose and used this as an excuse to remain behind. Each and every life event of these devotees of Islam were ready to sacrifice their lives is a testimony to their valor and devotion. One of them was martyred at the hands of the disbelievers in the campaign of Bir-i-Mauna, while the other distinctly participated in many dangerous battles and ultimately became the victor of Iraq. Therefore, to doubt the sincerity of such people, especially when that doubt is founded on self-concocted notions, is the work of Mr. Margolius alone. It is ironic that in his book, Mr. Margolius claims that he has written this book being completely free of prejudice. In any case, this is a side issue. This small community reached Nakhla and became engaged in their work. With the thought of concealing their classified mission, some of them shaved their heads so the travelers, etc. would not be alarmed in any way, and so that they would consider them as being such people who had come with the intention of Umrah. However, they had only just arrived there when suddenly a small caravan of the Quraysh also happened to arrive, which was traveling from Daif to Makkah, and both parties encountered each other. The Muslims consulted one another as to what should be done. The Holy Prophet had sent them for the purpose of secretly obtaining intelligence. But on the other hand, war had begun with the Quraysh, but both opponents were before one another, and naturally there was a risk that now, since the people from the caravan of the Quraysh 
has spotted the Muslims, their covert intelligence mission would no longer remain secret. Another predicament was that some Muslims thought that it was perhaps the last day of Rajab, i.e. a sacred month in which the fighting was prohibited as per the ancient Arabian custom. Others thought that Rajab had passed and the month of Shaban had started. In some narrations, it has been related that Sariya was dispatched in Jamadiyul Akhir and there was a doubt as to whether whether this day was of Jamadi or Rajab. However, on the other hand, the Valley of Nakhla was situated right on the outskirts of the Haram, and it was obvious that if a decision was not made that day, the caravan would have entered the Haram on the following day, the sanctity of which was definite. Hence, taking all of these factors into consideration, it was finally decided that the caravan should be attacked, and the people of the caravan should either be taken captive or killed. Therefore, they launched an attack in the name of Allah, and as a result, one man, whose name was Amr bin al-Hadrami was killed and two were taken captive. However, the fourth individual unfortunately escaped and the Muslims were unable to apprehend him. Therefore, the Muslims seized the goods of the caravan. Since one man belonging to the Quraysh had escaped and news of this conflict would inevitably reach Makkah quickly, Abdullah bin Jash and his companions swiftly returned. On this occasion, Mr. Margolius writes that Muhammad deliberately dispatched this company in the sacred month because in this month the Quraysh naturally would have been unmindful and the Muslims would find an easy and definite opportunity to raid their caravan. However, every sensible individual can understand that a small party of this nature could not have been dispatched to such a far-off region to plunder a caravan, especially when the enemy headquarters were so nearby. Furthermore, history categorically establishes that this party had merely been dispatched for the purpose of obtaining intelligence. Moreover, when the Holy Prophet found out that the companions had attacked the caravan, he was extremely displeased. As such, it is narrated that when they presented themselves before the Holy Prophet and informed him of the entire account, the Holy Prophet was extremely displeased and said, I have not given you permission to fight in the sacred month. Then it is written that the Holy Prophet refused to accept the spoils. Upon this, Abdullah and his companions felt extreme remorse and shame. Then it is written that they thought that due to their incurring the displeasure of God and his messenger, they had been ruined. Even other companions reproached them and said, You did that which you had not been ordered, and you fought in the sacred month, although you had not been ordered at all to fight in this campaign. On the other hand, the Quraysh also raised a huge hue and cry, and that the Muslims had violated the sanctity of the sacred month. Since the person who had been killed, Amr bin al-Hadrami, was a chieftain and was also a confederate of Utbah bin Rabia, a chieftain of Makkah, this occurrence greatly enraged the Quraysh's fire of fury. They began to prepare for an attack upon Medina with even greater zeal and uproar. Hence the Battle of Badr, which shall be mentioned ahead, was primarily a result of this very preparation and vehement enmity. Therefore, upon this occurrence, there was murmuring both among the Muslims and disbelievers. And finally, the following Quranic verse was revealed, which provided a means of relief for the Muslims. People ask thee about fighting in the sacred month. 
Tell them undoubtedly fighting in the sacred month is a great transgression, but to forcefully hinder men from the religion of God in the sacred month, rather to disbelieve in relation to the sacred month and the sacred mosque, i.e. to violate their sanctity and then to turn out by coercion the inhabitants of the haram as you are guilty of doing o ye idolaters is a greater sin with allah than fighting in the sacred month and verily to persecute in the land or in the sacred month is worse than such fighting which is for the purpose of preventing persecution o ye muslims the state of the disbelievers is such that they become so blinded in their enmity towards you that they will not cease fighting you at any time at any place until they turn you back from their faith if they find the power to do so. Therefore, history establishes that the chieftains of the Quraysh would spread their bloody propaganda even in the sacred months. As a matter of fact, they became even more active in their evil designs during these months, taking benefit of the gatherings and journeys which would take place in the sacred months. Furthermore, with great shamelessness in order to gratify themselves with a false satisfaction, they would rearrange the order of the sacred months. Then later on they crossed all bounds, when during the era of the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, despite there being a firm covenant and agreement, the disbelievers of Makkah and their allies took up the sword against an ally of the Muslims in the area of the Haram. And then when the Muslims set out in support of this tribe, they fought against them as well as in the very region of the Haram. Hence, it was only natural for the Muslims to find comfort in this response. But the Quraysh were also brought to level. During this time, two of their men arrived in Medina in order to have their two captives released. However, until now, Sa'ad bin Abi Waqas and Utbah had not returned. On their account, the Holy Prophet greatly feared that if the Quraysh happened to seize them, they would not release them alive. Hence, for this reason, the Holy Prophet refused to release the captives until they returned and said, When my men safely reach Medina, I will release yours. Therefore, when they both reached Medina, the Holy Prophet released both captives for a ransom. However, from among these two captives, one individual was so deeply impressed by the high moral qualities of the Holy Prophet and the truth of the Islamic teaching during his stay in Medina, that even after his release, he refused to return and join the servants of the Holy Prophet. He was finally martyred at Bir i Mauna. His name was Hakam bin Kaisan. Alteration of the Qibla Despite the endless engagements of war and conflict, the task of the perfection and establishment of religion could not come to a halt because this was the primary cause of the prophetic commission. The Salat had already been instituted in Mecca. In Medina, the obligation of the Salat and congregation made apparent the need for Inazan, and this was arranged. However, until now, the Qibla of the Muslims was set to Jerusalem, and even in Mecca, the Holy Prophet and his companions would face Jerusalem when offering their Salat. In the early era of Medina, this practice continued. However, it was always a desire of the Holy Prophet for the Kaaba and Mecca to be appointed as the Qibla of the Muslims, because this was the first house for the worship of God, which was built on earth. Moreover, the memory of the father of prophets, Ehajat Abraham, Khalilullah, and the patriarch of the Arab, Ishmael, Vabiullah, was also tied to this very house. 
Furthermore, in his capacity as the birthplace and home of the Holy Prophet, and the fountainhead and source of Islam as well, it was the Kaaba which was most deserving of being the Qibla of the Muslims. However, until now, since it had not been ordained that Salat be offered in the direction of the Kaaba, for this reason the Holy Prophet continued to offer his Salat in the direction of Jerusalem, and this practice continued for 16 to 17 months after the migration. But now time had come when the Muslims were to be fixed upon their true Qibla. Hence, in the second year of migration, during the month of Shaban, inclination of the Holy Prophet became a catalyst for the revelation of divine command. And at once, the direction of the Muslims was turned from Jerusalem to the Kaaba. The verses of the Holy Quran, which were revealed in this regard, are as follows. Indeed, those people who are foolish shall object, saying, What has turned the Muslims away from their Qibla which they followed? Say, to Allah belong the east and the west. He guides whom he pleases to the right path. And O Messenger, we had only appointed your previous Qibla as a trial, so that it may become apparent as to who truly follows the Messenger of God and who turns upon his heels. And undoubtedly the last Qibla was a burden upon dispositions, except for those who stand upon guidance from Allah. And O Messenger, in the matter of the Qibla, we see that your attention is tied to the heavens, as to when an injunction is revealed that all should face towards the Kaabatullah. Therefore, now we turn you to the Qibla for your preference. And O ye Muslims, wherever you may be, turn your faces to the sacred mosque. And know that for every nation is a special direction of attention. And although we have appointed your physical direction towards the Kaaba, but remember that your spiritual direction should be to progress in virtue. The benefit of this physical and spiritual harmony will be that wherever in the world you may be, you shall remain united. Surely Allah has the power to do all that He wills. In these Quranic verses, where the injunction of the alteration of the Qibla has been alluded to, its wisdom and need has also been mentioned. Through the Qibla, apparent harmony and unity and form is maintained within the nation. Furthermore, it has also been mentioned that in the beginning, for a period of time, Allah the Exalted appointed Jerusalem as the Qibla for the Muslims under the wisdom that it may serve as a trial for the idolaters of Makkah, whose entire center of attention was the Kaaba, and so that they may develop a spirit of sacrifice for their faith. However, when an appropriate period upon this era of trial had passed, it was ordered that everyone should face the actual Qibla. At this instance, Sir William Muir raises the allegation that initially the Muslims offered their Salat facing Jerusalem, so that the Jews of Medina would be inclined to them. However, when they noticed that they were not falling into this deception, they changed the direction to the Kaaba, so that an attempt could be made at pleasing the idolaters of Arabia. Undoubtedly, prejudice blinds a person. However, if an able person like Sir William Muir, who has served as the successful governor of a very large province of India, makes such unfounded statements regarding Islam, then indeed this is astonishing. However, the truth is so clear that it cannot be hidden despite efforts to do so. To claim that a practice which was instituted in Mecca many years prior to the migration and abrogated a few months after arriving in Medina was so that the Jews of Medina could be pleased and its abrogation occurred in order 
order to attain the pleasure of the idolaters, cannot deceive a sensible person. The truth is that the first Qibla was a trial for the idolaters, and it was prior to the migration that the time for this trial was best suited. However, since idolaters resided in Medina as well, this trial also continued throughout the early days at Medina as well. However, when the idolaters of Medina were nearly non-existent, this trial was no longer required and the injunction of the alteration of the Qibla was revealed. There were two wisdoms in this injunction. Firstly, that the Muslims were set to their actual Qibla. Secondly, that the new Qibla may serve as a trial for the Jews, just as the first Qibla was a trial for the idolaters. Hence, the truth is not that which Mr. Muir's pen of prejudice has crafted. Rather, it is quite the opposite. Moreover, the Qur'an, which is declared by Muir as being greater than all other testimony in terms of historical evidence, is also witnessed in this respect. Fasting in Ramadan After Salat, the next greatest pillar in the Islamic worship is fasting. In actuality, Islam has instituted different forms of worship, taking into consideration the various types of inner purification. In other words, if Salat removes the impurities and weaknesses of a person in one aspect and makes him able to become a beloved of God, then fasting fulfills this purpose in another manner. And Zakat is prescribed for a third aspect, and Hajj holds a fourth purpose, separate to the previous three. In this manner, various forms of worship fulfill varying purposes and are helpful in the reformation and progress of mankind in various respects. If one contemplates, it becomes clearly evident that the order in which the various Islamic forms of worship were instituted is the exact order of their significance as well. In other words, the most significant and most vast is its influence upon human morals and spirituality is that worship which was instituted first. After this, a worship of lesser rank was instituted and after that a worship of lesser rank, and so on and so forth. Those people who do not offer their worship merely as a tradition and have the habit of analyzing its effect upon their souls can easily understand that the first position of all worship belongs to Salat. After this is fasting, and then the other forms of worship. In any case, until then, only Salat has been ordained, and then in the second year of migration at the arrival of Ramadan, fasting began as well. In other words, the injunction was revealed that in the month of Ramadan, with the exception of sick and weak, and those on journey, every adult Muslim man and woman would abstain from all types of food and drink from dawn till dusk. And during these hours, intimate relations between husband and wife would also be abstained from. Furthermore, the days of fasting would particularly be spent in the remembrance of Allah, recitation of the Holy Quran, and in charity and alms. During the nights of fasting, special arrangements for the Hajjat prayer would be made, etc. As such, it is written with regards to the Holy Prophet that his Ramadan was a complete embodiment of worship. Although the entire life of the Holy Prophet was nothing except worship, but during fasting, the Holy Prophet would particularly spend the better part of his time in voluntary services and in the remembrance of Allah. He would often remain awake during the nights, and during Ramadan, the Holy Prophet would offer charity and alms to such an extent that companions would likened him to a fast wind which knew no stopping. Moreover, in order to keep the spirit of fasting alive, the Holy Prophet would always admonish the companions not to think that by the mere abstinence of food and drink as a tradition, they would be counted among those who had fasted. Rather, that they would bear in mind the actual spirit of fasting, so that a sense of inner purity, restraint of desires, and a faculty of sacrifice and service to the needy may be fostered. Furthermore, he would state that most unfortunate is he who is afforded an opportunity to fast in Ramadan and does not 
thereby have his previous sins forgiven. The Holy Prophet would also encourage fasting as a voluntary service, but it was a sunnah of the Holy Prophet to order a middle course in every matter. As such, the Holy Prophet would forbid people from fasting continuously and would say that Allah has commanded that a person owes rights even to his own soul. He owes rights to his wife and children. He owes rights to his friends and neighbors. And in this manner, there are other rights as well. The fulfillment of all these rights under the shariat and will of God is also a form of worship. Therefore, a person should not overly emphasize the observance of a specific type of worship and neglect the other rights which are owed by him. Therefore, during this year, fasting in the month of Ramadan was ordained and a second pillar was added to Islamic worship. However, it should be remembered that just as the Holy Prophet would offer voluntary salat in his own way prior to the ordinance of the five daily salat and would instruct his companions to follow suit, in the same manner, prior to the ordinance of fasting in the month of Ramadan, the Holy Prophet would observe voluntary fasting as well. However, until then, this had not formally and specifically instituted for a specific time period. As such, it is narrated in the Hadith that prior to the obligation of fasting in the month of Ramadan, the Holy Prophet would fast on the day of Ashura, i.e. on the 10th of Muharram, and would encourage the companions to do the same. At the end of Ramadan, after the fasting of Ramadan had been ordained, the Holy Prophet issued the injunction of Sadaqatul Fitr, according to divine command. Every Muslim who possessed the capacity to do so was enjoined to contribute one saw of dates, grapes, barley or wheat, etc. per person on behalf of himself, his family and dependents, as charity prior to Eid. This charity was distributed among the poor, needy, orphans and widows, etc., so that this may serve as an expiation for any lapses which may have occurred during the worship of fasting, and a means of aid may be arranged for the poor on the occasion of Eid. As such, according to the command of the Holy Prophet, prior to every Eid at the end of Ramadan, Sadaqatullah Fitr was formally collected from every young and old Muslim man and woman, and distributed among the orphans, poor and needy. It was in this very year that Eid al-Fitr began as well. In other words, the Holy Prophet ﷺ ordered that upon the completion of the month of Ramadan, the Muslims should celebrate Eid on the first of Shawwal. This Eid was in the joy that Allah the Exalted had granted them the ability to offer worship in Ramadan. However, it is immensely fascinating that even for the expression of this joy, the Holy Prophet prescribed a worship. As such, he ordered that on the day of Eid, all the Muslims should congregate in an open space and offer two rakat of salat. Then, after this salat, the Muslims should, of course, express their outwardly joy as well, because when the soul experiences joy, it is a right for the body to partake of it as well. In actuality, Allah the Almighty has placed an Eid at the end of all those significant forms of worship which are observed collectively. The Eid of the Salat is the Friday prayer service which arrives after the observance of Salat for one week. This has been referred to as the most superior of all the festivals of Eid. Then the Eid of fasting is Eid al-Fitr, which arrives at the close of Ramadan. The Eid of Hajj is Eid al-Adha, which is celebrated on the second day of Hajj. All of these festivals of Eid are a form of worship in themselves. Therefore, the festivals of Eid in Islam possess a wonderful magnificence and substantial light is shed upon the reality of Islam. One receives an opportunity to contemplate as to how Islam wishes to bind every action of the Muslims to the remembrance of Allah. 
I am compelled to digress from history. Otherwise, I would elaborate as to how Islam has leavened every movement, statement, and action of a Muslim with the remembrance of God. This is to such an extent that even in daily tasks of minor importance, such as standing and sitting, moving about, sleeping and awakening, eating and drinking, bathing, changing one's clothes, wearing shoes, leaving and entering the home, leaving or returning from a journey, selling or buying something, ascending or descending from a height, entering or exiting the mosque, meeting a friend, encountering an enemy, seeing the new moon, approaching one's wife, thus in one way or another, the commencement and completion of every single task has been tied to the remembrance of Allah, even upon sneezing and yawning. In such a state of affairs, if the idolaters of Arabia referred to the Holy Prophet, who brought this teaching, but with regards to whom the disbelievers thought that he had crafted this teaching of his own accord, as having gone mad in the love of God, then this was not surprising. It is true that for a worldly man, these things would appear to be nothing but madness. However, a person who has understood the reality of his own being knows that this is the very essence of life.